Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for the great gift of love. I pray for your spirit to direct us as we seek to understand more clearly what that gift truly is and what it means to us, Father. We thank you for this season to reflect on the vessel which you bring us that gift through and the gift of your son in his birth and his life and his death and his resurrection, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, before I get started, I do want to make a little bit of an announcement. I should have done it earlier this morning, but I'm still going to take my opportunity. After five children, you like to mix things up a little bit when you make announcements. So this time, instead of putting it on Facebook or making a big announcement, we just kind of let it leak out. And for those of you who haven't heard yet, Lord willing, next June there will be another little Schwarzenegger in the family. So. Thank you. Many of you have, have heard and have uh, been very kind. I do ask that you please continue to pray for my wife. She's still in that first trimester on the tail end of it. So uh, sickness has, uh, has been with her some through it. So please continue to lift her up in that. As, you refle- as we reflect on this scripture this morning, I ask you the question, what is love? When you think of that word, does it, what does it mean to you? Well, this morning, we're going to talk about how it is revealed, how it is manifested, how love looks to us. But before we get to that, I want to ask you, what, what is it? What is love? If someone asks you, what is love? What would you say? Well, the scripture we read for the call to worship this morning said plainly, God is love. Well, what does that tell us? In 1 John chapter 4, continuing from our call to worship scripture this morning, starting in verse 9. It says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Well, that brings us to our main text for today. And I ask you again, what is love and what does it mean to love one another? And the challenge that John gives us. In verse 11 there, what does it mean to love one another? As we break that down this morning, you see three points in your sermon outline. The first is the importance, the importance of love. How important is it to love? How important is love? The next point is the manifestation. What does love look like? How would you describe love? And then finally, the completion How does this all come together? How does the pure definition of love reconcile with the reality of life? Well, first, the question. What is love? And love used in these verses is the Greek word agape. I don't use a lot of Greek words to try to pronounce them, but this is a word that is very familiar to us, I believe. You've heard the different definitions the different Greek words for love. The one that we are most familiar with is agape. 
it defines, it, it, it talks about, it illustrates a deep abiding, also known as enduring, and, and a deep abiding and enduring self-sacrificing love. The kind that looks out for the other person first. We put everyone else before us. How important is love? That's what the first section of Scripture, I believe, tells us. This chapter in the letter to the Corinthians is bookended. It's the chapter before it and the chapter after it refer to spiritual gifts. Chapter 12 speaks of various gifts and the source of those gifts. Chapter 14, verse 1 tells us to pursue love and to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Love should be our top priority. The utilization, the using, the attempt to use our spiritual gifts is important. It's our responsibility as Christians. But if love isn't behind the utilization through the use of our spiritual gifts, they lose their value. They lose their effectiveness. They burn out. They wear out. Paul in this text gives some pretty dramatic examples. He talks about speaking in tongues of angels, the same language that angels speak. He talks about having prophetic powers. He talks about having all wisdom and all knowledge. He also talks about having a faith to remove mountains. He talks about our faith being so strong that we're able to give away everything of value in this world. Everything that the world puts value on, including our lives. He goes to tell us in each of those circumstances, in each of those gifts, that if it does not come from love, it's nothing. All of these supernatural, miraculous things, if we could perform all of them, but did not perform them in love, they would have no value. They would mean nothing. Those are pretty dramatic, like I said. What about you bring it down to things that we're more familiar with? What if you're a great speaker? person who is able to eloqu- eloquently, yeah, eloquently say words. That worked out, didn't it? If you're able to bring a message that is clear to people through your words, but you don't do it in love, you don't respond to them in love, it means nothing. Maybe you're an amazing teacher. You can bring out points in conversation. You get people engaged in class. But you don't do it in love. It means nothing. Maybe you're a great administrator. You can organize things. You can delegate things. You can help an operation to run very smoothly. But if you don't have love, it means nothing. Maybe you're a great helper. You can meet the physical needs. You can cook. You can clean. You can build. But if you don't have love, it means nothing. 
Why do you do these things? Why do you take your opportunities to, to preach, to speak? Why do you take opportunities to be an administrator? Why do you take opportunities to teach or to cook or to clean or to serve or to build? Why do you do it? Love should be a part of everything we do. Actually, love should be the reason for everything that we do. Our actions, our things that we participate in, should be born out of love. A self-sacrificing love. The kind, remember, that looks out for the other person first, ahead of ourselves. How is this love manifested? What does it look like? The next few verses list some characteristics of things to look for when you're looking for true love. He talks about, in these verses, what love is and what love isn't. You remember from last week in Josh's message, I had the opportunity to listen to it from the recording. He talked about the wreath and peace on earth. He mentioned, and he very beautifully demonstrated how Christ is peace. He's the prince of peace. Christ is the embodiment of peace in the flesh. Remember, God is love. Do you understand that this morning? So if God is love, then again, what is love? We defined it already. What does it look like? Paul says that love is patient. Love is kind. Have you ever sat and meditated and really reflected and thought about how patient God is with you? Think of all the times you've screwed up. All the times that you've decided to serve self above others. All the times in your heart you knew better, but you chose not to do better. How patient has God been with you in wooing you and bringing you to Him, sanctifying you, purifying you, cleansing you? That's love. How patient are you when your wife or your children or your employee or your friend disappoints you? How patient are you I fail at this. And sadly, in my case, just to be honest with you this morning, it seems like I'm more patient with others than I am with my own family. So I have a discussion this week, and I asked the question, why is that, as I was studying for this? Friends of mine put one word on it and said expectations. Truth is, I probably expect more out of my family than I expect out of myself. That's not love. But that is a very major root of where impatience comes, as we expect too much. We expect more of others than we expect of ourselves. God is patient. He wants us to turn to Him. He wants us to live a life of obedience for Him. 
but he's so incredibly patient with us as he waits for us. In verse 7, Paul says that love bears all things. That word bears, the root word behind it means to cover or hide by covering. Christ covered our sins with his blood. What a gift. How do we bear each other's burdens? Christ bore our burdens on the cross by shedding his blood and carrying them to the cross. How do we bear each other's burdens? We don't forsake them. We help them. We encourage them. We can be crushed by the weight of our sins. Our loved ones can be crushed by the weight of their sins. Alex said it this morning. Chris said it so many times. I've heard him say it in my different interactions with him. Christ took care of our biggest problem 2,000 years ago on the cross. Everything else is just details. Our biggest problem was that we were bound for hell for eternity. But Christ covered our sinfulness. He bore our sins by shedding his blood. That's love. Paul says that love believes all things. Love believes the best in people. Jesus told the adulterous woman to go and sin no more. How skeptical would have we been in that situation? Jesus, she's a wretched woman. You don't know how, how awful she's been. There's no hope for her. But Christ dismissed all of her accusers and lovingly instructed her to go. And sin no more. And in his words gave her hope that she could actually do it. That's love. Do you believe the best in others? Or are you Mr. or Miss Negative? Well, they might get over this sin. They might stop failing in this way, but it doesn't look good. Is that our attitudes? I struggle with it some. You think, God, they've been living this lifestyle for 10, 20, 30 years. How are they going to change? They're going to change by the grace of God. And by the grace of God alone, not by anything that they can do. And that's the love that emanates from God. That willingness to stand with. That believing the best in others, even when he knows there's potential for, the, for us to fail. Paul goes on to say that love hopes all things. Remember what hope means biblically? To expect an expectation, not a wish, but an expectation. That hope, that expectation is a looking forward. God doesn't look back at our sinfulness. He looks forward to what is possible, what is before us by grace and his influence and power over our lives. That hope, that expectation is another manifestation of God's love. Love endures all things. Love, true love, endures, carries through every circumstance. Believers who love are active and steadfast in their faith. They hold on. 
no matter what difficulties they face. Hardship and pain do not stop love. When believers persevere, they face suffering within the body. They face persecution. They hang on when the going gets tough. They strive to save their marriages despite disappointments. Again, failed expectations. They continue to trust God despite setbacks. And they continue to serve God despite fear or sorrow over indescribable losses. When believers truly persevere, nothing can stop them. Nothing can stop us. You say, Kevin, you're kind of hitting on all the positives here. You bounced around and skipped some things. Yeah, I did. We have in these verses also what I call the knots. Paul says, love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Ouch. How many of that list applies to you? How many of that list applies to me? Because I participate in some of those knots. Does that mean I'm not saved? Does that mean you're not saved? Plain and simple, it just means that in that time, in that instance, we're not loving. We're falling short of the mark because we're human. It means we're not imitating Christ. The truth is, love is very long suffering. But there is justice. In verse 6, Paul says, It, love, does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. What does that mean? Let's go to Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Love, true love. God demonstrated love calls sin, sin. Does not make excuses. Does not dismiss it. Does not cover it up. It calls sin, sin. And then walks with the sinner. Loves them, encourages them, helps to pick them up when they fall, when they fail, when they sin. That's true love. So yeah, when we exhibit some of the knots, God forgives us. He's there to point us in the direction of the true example of love. Are we doing that for each other? Are we doing that for ourselves? Do we forgive ourselves? Do we understand the power of God's love in our lives? How loving do you feel this morning when you read these verses? Do you feel some condemnation? Just from the scripture alone. Calling some of the things that you do unloving. 
contrary to the nature of God. As I said, I fall well short. How does this come together? Where does our encouragement come in this? Because we obviously, in our fallen state, can't live up to this godly standard of love. Paul goes on to say, love never ends. God is the Alpha, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. Love has always been and always will be. It never ends. But these other things, Paul says, they do end. Prophecies, they're going to end. They're all going to be fulfilled. When Christ returns, prophecies will be over. Everything will be satisfied. Tongues. They'll pass away. We'll all understand each other, just like we did before we tried to build that crazy tower. The Tower of Babel, when the, when the languages were confused. When all prophecies are fulfilled and everything is fulfilled, we'll all be of one language again. We'll understand each other. Knowledge, Paul says, will pass away. At least the pursuit of it will end. We'll know everything. We'll be in beautiful, complete fellowship with God and the pursuit of knowledge will not be necessary any longer. Paul goes on to say, this life is temporary. In verse 9 of chapter 13, he says, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. And then in verse 10, But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. The perfect, Jesus Christ, will complete the partial. He'll fill in all of our shortcomings. He won't just fill them in. He'll cover them. He'll complete them. He will purify them so that we will be presented perfect before God. That's the gift of Jesus Christ. Paul goes on in his narrative of love and what love is and what it means to use some natural analogies. One of the, in one of them, he compares childhood to manhood. In the other, he compares looking in a mirror to seeing God face to face. That's where we are, right smack in the middle of those two analogies. As mature as we may be in our spiritual walk, we're still children when it comes to understanding God. As mature as we are in our spiritual walk, the things of God still appear dimly relative to the true image of God. As I was studying these verses, this mirror analogy kind of got me a little bit. Verse 12. Again, it says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Why can we not look at God directly? In Exodus chapter 33, verse 20. But he said, You cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. We can't look upon God without a blood sacrifice. Because if we do, His holiness would kill us, destroy us. Our impurities, imperfections would be crushed under His holiness alone. 
That's why God instituted the blood sacrifices under the Old Testament to demonstrate that a sacrifice was needed and to show that we could not accomplish, we could not fulfill that sacrifice in our humanity. And then into the new covenant, he sent the one true, pure sacrifice to present us holy before God so that when we are presented to our Creator in the day of judgment, we can stand and not be destroyed, not be crushed because of the gift of Jesus Christ. We cannot look upon the holiness of God without that sacrifice, without Jesus' righteousness righteousness being imputed upon us. And that's why in the greatest act of love, God sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, the payment, the covering, the cleansing of our sins. So why did this verse about looking in a mirror dimly hit me so hard? Most of you know, as you're a part of our congregation, that I have a visual impairment. Occasionally we'll have a visitor that is not aware of that. So if you're here this morning and don't understand that, I am considered legally blind. Visually impaired is a a phrase I've been using because I do have some vision. I can see this Christmas tree lit up over here and behind me. I can see the lights above. I can't make out any faces in the audience. Daryl, go ahead and put slide one up. You see, my physical eyes are dim. I, in the physical, am looking in a mirror dimly rather than being able to see each of you clearly. The medical reason behind that, what has caused that, is that I have a condition called Leber's congenital amaurosis. It's a rare type of a more common uh, condition called retinitis pigmentosa. It's a lot of big words. Daryl, go ahead and put slide one up. And I know it's close to lunch, so bear with me. I hope this doesn't unsettle too many stomachs. But what you see there is a healthy retina. Go to slide two. I'm sorry, I had my notes wrong. Yeah. What you see there, does it say normal retina at the top? Okay. This is a normal retina. The retina is the part of your eye that catches light, takes the image and translates it to where your mind can interpret it, to where you can see details, you can read, you can do whatever you do with your eyes. That is a picture of a healthy retina. Daryl, go to slide three. That is a picture, not of my retina, but of someone who has the same, similar condition that I have. What you see on there that's different from the other picture is scarring. You see, my eye condition, it's a, it's a lack of a protein. And that lack of a protein causes the scarring to occur on your retina. And that's why myself and others who have this condition, as life goes on, their vision actually diminishes. Because that scarring continues to increase and to, in effect, block my vision, their vision.
The reality of this is, and when I bring in this physical analogy in, that we're all, I'm looking at the physical life dimly because of the scarring on my retina. But we, as Christians, are looking at the spiritual life dimly. We're looking through the scars of our sin. We're looking through the scars of the effect of other people's sin upon us because we live in a fallen world. And if that sin's not addressed, is not dealt with, the scarring of our spirits, of our souls, continues to increase and blocks our view of the true God. Blocks our view of His hope. Blocks our view of His peace. Blocks our view of His love. Because we can't get past the scars of our sin, the scars of sin. We can get completely bogged down in the scars of our sin. As I look through the physical scars of my eyes, it can get discouraging. I can bump into things. It takes me a lot longer to accomplish things than I, I know it would if that scarring wasn't there. But that isn't, the, isn't that the same effect that the scars of our sin have on us spiritually? And as I look through my spiritual scars, it can actually seem hopeless spiritually. Can you imagine facing the problems of this world without a relationship with Jesus Christ? Maybe some of you here this morning are attempting that. It doesn't have to be that way. Sin is awful. Sin is painful. But God, by His grace, gives us the power to overcome it. In my physical, He's provided many ways for me to be able to function, for me to be able to minister, for me to be able to be a parent, to be a father. To be a husband. One of the greatest gifts he gave me was my bride. I don't know if I've ever shared this with you guys, but from our very first date, she has intuitively been able to know how to lead me. There's very little that I have to describe to this amazing lady that I can or cannot see. It's just intuitive. And with the twist of her hand, she can direct me through crowds. That's not perfect. Most of the time it's because I'm not paying attention if I run into something. But that's a gift he's given me, a gift he's given us within the covenant of our relationship. He gives us gifts to be able to overcome the scars of our sin. All we have to do is trust in them and lean on them. God's standard of love is so high. It's so perfect. It's so beautiful. Daryl, go ahead to slide four. Look at this verse and notice the tenses in the verse. The past, the present. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now, I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Fully known by who? Christ, the Son of the one true God. That's who I am fully known by. Despite my impatience, despite my selfishness, despite my anger. He comes behind the screen of the scars of my sin and lifts me up and says, you are righteous in my eyes because my son shed his blood for your life. 
Do you understand that gift this morning? Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us. And that why we were still sinners, Christ died for us. <clears throat> Verse 13, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. What does this verse mean? Is it just a poetic end to this chapter? No, it has deep meaning. Paul has been talking about spiritual gifts. In eternity, those gifts will greatly decrease in significance to us. Faith itself has been mentioned as a spiritual gift. Or it refers to saving faith that God has given for forgiveness of sins. In this verse, it's referring to trust in the goodness and the mercy of God. Trust in the midst of our trials. Trust in the midst of our difficult circumstances. Many of you have heard me say my favorite verse is 2 Corinthians 5, 7. I don't have it up on the screen this morning. But for we walk by faith, not by sight. That faith is amazing. That faith is incredible. It is an amazing gift. This trust, this faith will carry us through until we see God face to face, until we see fully. Then, in this verse, Paul mentions hope. We look forward as believers to God's promised kingdom to us. That's that expectation, that looking forward. Once that kingdom is fulfilled, there'll be no need for that hope any longer because it will be fulfilled. Then Paul says, finally, love. The greatest of these is love. Why is love the greatest? Paul told us that love would abide. It would stand forever. It's the only quality that will be fully active, both in the present tense and for eternity to come. Our faith will be complete when we see God face to face. Our hope will be fulfilled, but love will continue. In fact, we will embrace love in its fullness. It will be completely patient and kind. It will bear all things. It will believe all things. It will be complete. That's the gift. That's the blessing. We will no longer be looking at the beautiful love of God through the scars of our sin. We will be looking at it with the veil lifted in all of its glory, in all of its beauty, in all of its preciousness will be ours to embrace. What a gift that is to us that was brought to us through that babe that was born in a manger over 2,000 years ago. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, Lord, we thank you for the gift of love. God, we thank you that we are not doomed by the scars of our sin. That we are not bound and, and sent, condemned to hell for the, rest of our, for the rest of eternity because of our sinfulness, Lord. We thank you that through your great love, through the sacrifice of your son, through his shed blood, that the veil of our scars will be lifted. 
And we will be able, we will be privileged to see you fully in your glory and your holiness. And not be crushed, not be overwhelmed, but to be fully embraced and carried and loved for eternity, Father. Lord, give us strength this morning to be encouraged, to hope, to trust in you until the prophecies are fulfilled, until the promises are fulfilled, Lord. As we walk through the trials and the challenges of the circumstances of this life, Lord, we praise you that we have you to look toward, your promise to trust and your promise to believe in, Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.